Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sunny Go One Piece podcast. On this episode, we're going to be talking about episodes 260 through 263, which will be covering manga chapters 370 through 374. And as we inch closer to Aeneas Lobby, with time running out, we take a look to see if the Puffing Tom trio can retrieve Robin and escape. But yeah, so the synopsis, picking up from the last episode, we're in the midst of three tense confrontations as Sanji continues to battle out with the CP7 noodle-wielding cook Wanze, as well as Frankie facing off against the newbie CP9 weasel agent Nero. All the while, Soga King tries desperately to convince Robin to escape with them. And all of this with the backdrop of the Rocketman group following closely behind, but first needing to contend with Captain T-Bone standing in their way. Alright, so differences. Really, the only differences is the scene where Corgi discovers Soga King under Robin's cloak and Soga King taking Corgi out is not in the manga officially, but it is implied that that's what happened. As in the manga, we do see when Robin reveals herself, we see a burnt-up Corgi passed out on the floor. And yeah, pretty much this scene probably took place in the manga. It's just never actually depicted. But aside from this one little additional scene, these episodes were adapted almost identically. Alright, so let's get into the thoughts. So picking up with Sanji versus Wanze, Sanji makes pretty quick work of Wanze's suit now that he's using the knives, which is pretty badass. And I love it when Sanji describes fighting like he's describing preparing ingredients for cooking. It's something I haven't really commented on much up till now, but he does it fairly often. Whenever he does, it's pretty freaking badass. We also catch up with Frankie versus Nero, and we get to see more of Frankie's various devices that he's got hidden in his cyborg body, like his star shield, which is very Captain America-esque, as well as the ability to spit out nails in addition to already having seen him spit out fire, as well as various pistols and machine guns hidden in his left arm, hands, and fingers. And even with all that, Nero gets to Frankie's backside and shoots him twice, But this again shows that Frankie himself is actually one tough guy to begin with as he just kind of shakes off two bullet wounds which is kind of crazy to me because technically he's still human on the backside of his body and yet he takes two bullet wounds like it's nothing and he's fine later on too. However in true Oda fashion where the fight should be getting serious with Frankie's weakness exploited by Nero he goes in a completely opposite direction and takes a, a turn for the sort of absurdist humor route by having Frankie counter this by saying he's invincible if he lies down. Which is true, but how is he supposed to fight? Like, this reminds me a lot of Luffy's Gomu Gomu no Bong when he was fighting NL. He could dodge everything, but because he wasn't thinking, he couldn't actually fight back, which is pretty much the same situation here with Frankie. I think I love it even more that Nero is stunned at how absurd and stupid Frankie's strategy here is, that he's just completely at a loss for words. After this, we catch back up again with our third story with Soga King and Robin. But first off, you know, Usopp staying in character as Soga King with Robin, even to the point where Robin is a little confused, is pretty funny in such a serious and dire situation in and of itself. But... <laughs> He finally gets to explain to her that everyone is working to reach her and save her again. But the thought of the buster call being unleashed on the Straw Hats is still something she can't actually shake. However, when Robin still won't believe in the Straw Hats, Usopp finally breaks character 
and starts to argue back that she should have more faith in them and that they aren't as weak as she thinks they are. I think it's really something to be said that even after Usopp had a falling out with Luffy, he still truly respects and believes in his strength and willpower. Going so far as to lecture Robin about how she still fully doesn't understand what kind of man Luffy is, which makes sense. She's known Luffy the shortest amount of time among the entire crew, and she hasn't seen everything that Luffy has done for his crew and what he's actually capable of. One thing to specifically note here is just how emphatic Robin is about how she has no ounce of desire to be saved by them, which we all find hard to believe, but this point will be an important one later on. But getting back to how she doesn't quite understand Luffy, you know, and I don't mean strength as in like physical strength, because I'm sure she recognizes his strength after witnessing him beat Crocodile and NL. But I mean more of Luffy's willpower and determination is still not quite as known to her, I feel like, here. Ultimately, though, there is still something about the overwhelming fear of the world government and the Buster Call that seems to be an almost insurmountable threat that she believes is unstoppable even for Luffy and the Straw Hats. It's really telling how afraid she is of this Buster Call and really builds this thing up in your head as the viewer. What could this Buster Call actually be? I mean, in my mind, you know, five marine at vice admirals with 10 gunships. I mean, yeah, it seems like a lo- an overwhelming force. But at the same time, I feel like that doesn't seem like a lot. But I guess we'll find out more about what the true power and devastation that the Buster Call can actually inf- inflict. However, because both of them are yelling so much, eventually Corgi comes in to check And this next scene is hilarious as Usopp has no choice but to hide under Robin's cloak but has his arms out as if they were hers which obviously looks insanely suspicious and I can't help but laugh so hard at this scene as Corgi clearly sees that something is off about Robin's appearance with the bulging hood from the Soga King mask and the mannerisms of Usopp's arms not quite lining up with, with what she's saying and her normal demeanor. And it's like... You can't quite put, you know, his finger on it, even though it's clear as day. It's even funnier as Usopp tries to sync his arm movements with Robin. But they again, they're so out of sync, it's completely absurd. And speaking of absurdity, we then cut back to Frankie, where he is tired of Nero's BS and gets ready to show off a new feature of his body and starts to talk of the centaur. And you begin to get this like image of Frankie transforming into this like super cool centaur like body. And and even Nero has like this like shocking thought of like, oh my god, what could this be? And then Frankie starts to say convert. Uh so in Japanese, I thought and and I'm sure many people thought this in, in the at least among the Japanese audiences, when he says hen and you're 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 thinking he's gonna say henshing which is transform, but when he starts that elongated hen, and instead of ending it with shing, he ends it with tai, which also does mean transform, but I'm sure as many of you know it, it also means pervert in Japanese, which is what comes across Nero's mind and ours. I mean, obviously this fits very well with Frankie and his personality, as many of the citizens in Water 7 often refer to Frankie as a hentai or pervert, due to his desire to go around in public in only a speedo. 
We're then treated to an epic transformation, but what kills me is once it's finished, because Frankie was only able to work on his front half of his body, only the front part of his legs can actually separate, and it's just backwards. It's just the back half of his body is the main part, and his legs come out to the front. And when Nero does his tsukomi of mentioning this fact, it cracks me up so hard every time. And by this point, I'm all in on Frankie joining the crew because he's freaking too much and so awesome. However, before we get to see the full power of the centaur mode, we head back to the Rocketmen as they finally catch up to the cars that were detached with T-Bone and the Marines and the government agents still on them. And they've got to move it out of the way, but they don't want to blow it away before checking to see if there might be some friendlies on board. So Luffy launches himself ahead to check. And one of my favorite shots slash panels... And I don't know why this this panel is so funny to me and why it's always kind of stood out to me, even though it's like nothing really all that important. But it's the shot of Luffy uh, giving the signal that it's empty as Zambai sees Luffy raise his hands and makes an X while bullets are flying through his body. I don't know. I've always just thought this shot was so funny for some reason. And it's always stood out to me because it's like Luffy's got this like really calm like look of disappointment while he's got his hands raised with X's and but he's got all these bullets flying through his body it's just a really funny panel and I always enjoyed it okay so next we get yet another amazing Zoro moment like this past like several chapters on the train have just been non-stop awesome Zoro moments and this is another one and similar to the 300 pound cannon moment the Frankie family and the Galila company get ready to deal with the moving cars on the track. Luffy just straight up tells Zoro to cut it, with Zoro again coolly replying, Ugh. And of course everyone's like, what? With Zoro calmly walking to the front of the train as the train cars are fast approaching, suddenly the sound goes quiet and the color leaves the screen with this sort of samurai flute music playing. Zoro prepares for a new move in a completely new style at that too, which is a Nitoryu Ei or two-sword draw style. And we've only seen him use one uh, Ei move, but it was a Nitoryu Ei, which was the Shishsonsong against Mr. One. But now he's got a two-sword style, dubbed the Nashomong, where he quickly draws both blades, unsheathing them, and unleashing two huge cuts that slice the train cars in half, with the cars just beginning to split as he's already sheathing both swords. And that shot of him crouched down as he sheathes the Yubashiri and Sunday Kitetsu as he's flanked on both sides with the split train cars is freaking magnificent. It's one of those panels that you can hang on a wall. As you can imagine in the manga, this takes up like a one and a half page spread because there's so much badassery to contain in just one page. However, this scene is so much better in the anime as it adds a lot with the buildup and the atmosphere with the whole silencing and the desaturation of the colors. It kind of adds to this epicness. While in the manga, Zoro almost seemingly does this in like literally in a flash instant which is usually how Iyagiri type moves are portrayed in most medium. But I love how they kind of elongate this in the anime because it really does add to like the cool factor. Now many of you probably know Rashomon being the title of one of Akira Kurosawa's famous movies, which various, you know, which like various accounts of a story is told under the Rashomon gate. And there's obviously more to it, but 
I'll let you watch the movie for yourself. But the gate itself was a really, like, was a real gate in ancient Kyoto, Japan. And it's fitting that Zoro uses a move named after a famous gate as it's used to open a path for them with that gate imagery provided by the split train cars on either side of them as they pass. Not to worry though, those soldiers are all okay as the split cars act as lifeboats, but one curious thing is that T-Bone is actually absent and not on the train cars, and it's implied that he has somehow gone back on the tracks towards Enius Lobby to presumably get help, and Zoro senses this as they approach him, enough for him to get serious and put on his Santoryu bandana. And T-Bone is a badass though, he's definitely strong. And, I mean, he's a captain, after all, the same rank as Smoker. Although he doesn't seem to have a devil fruit, as, but he just seems like a really gifted swordsman. As they approach T-Bone, we finally get an explanation as to why he's called T-Bone. And it's because he's known as the ship slasher, or the ship cutter, and has a reputation of cutting entire ships like steak. Hence, the T-Bone. And I actually watched an entire video on how to butcher a T-Bone steak to make sure of how it's cut and make sure how why this name actually fits and sure enough they do cut right through the bone although the video used the bandsaw like thing to cut it but i think it's why he's called t-bone since that is the hardest steak cut to actually cut i also love how this is becoming kind of a running joke every time zambai and the frankie family start to freak out about some sort of obstacle on the track Zoro just immediately comes out and takes care of it i can't help but also feel a little bad for t-bone I mean, he's just trying to do his job and his follow his own sense of justice as well as, you know, his subordinates. And that's why I really like that Oda portrays Zoro as actually giving T-Bone the honor of a serious confrontation with Zoro. You know, with him fully respecting him with the bandana and using Santoryu acknowledging T-Bone's strength. It's a really short battle, but it's interesting that T-Bone's Bone Phoenix is very similar to Zoro's own projectile slash that also got the Phoenix name in it. I guess Oda likes the imagery of a flying slash being referred to as one of the most mythical birds in folklore. Zoro, on the other hand, to defeat T-Bone reveals another new technique called Yuki Yuzume or Bull Ogre Bold Claw, where we see him point his swords forward like bullhorns and lunges forward, breaking through T-Bone's attack and launching him into the water. It's a pretty cool move, especially with how gracefully Zoro kind of weaves in and out of T-Bone's Bone Phoenix before he just straight up breaks through it. Also, again, like most of Zoro's moves, Oda loves to ha have fun with his puns on food. And this one is no different, as this one, when read slightly different, can also be said as Gyugyuzume, or tightly packed, or otherwise known as the beef bento box that they have in Japanese convenience stores and shops. And it's hard to kind of explain it here, but... Definitely look up Gyugyuzume, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So in the manga, it's never shown what happens to T-Bone, and for a while, we're left not knowing whether he lived or died until he re reappears much later in the story, but the anime goes out of its way to show him floating in the water with the marine agents kind of paddling their way up the track. So it's heavily implied that he gets picked up by them, and they all make it back safely to Enya's lobby at some point in the future. I guess that's a difference that I forgot to mention in the differences section. Back on the Puffing Tom, in car 1, we see Corgi still suspicious of Robin, and this time for some reason we can kind of see Usopp's nose sticking out a bit from the side. 
Usopp's arm gestures are so stupid, it looks so ridiculous on Robin's body. I don't even, I, I can't even really explain why he makes those other than he's just freaking out. And he, he I mean, he does make those arm movements whenever he does freak out uh, in the past, but I don't know why he would be doing them here. However, before we get to see the conclusion of this, we get back to Sanji and Wanze, where now that Sanji has dispatched of Wanze's armor, he puts the knives away as he lectures him about how knives aren't swords and they're not meant for hurting people. And then immediately Wanze throws a bunch of knives at Sanji with heavy irony there. And Sanji counters by kicking Wanze so hard in the face that his eyes get pushed back into his head. And I always chuckle at Wanze saying, ah, my eyes got pushed back in. And Sanji just dryly yells, yeah, let him. And this joke then goes even further as Sanji lands a barrage of kicks on Wanza's face as he begins to rearrange his entire face to the point where it looks not only uh, like a normal face, but a beautiful one. But Wanza was actually proud of his old weird face, which is really weird. But, I mean, I guess that's a good positive body image. But as a last-ditch effort, he pulls out a massive poison-soaked knife, or more like a broadsword, but Sanji is just tired of Wanza's BS at this point especially his disrespectfulness as a cook. But most of all, his bad-mouthing Robin really sets him off and unleashes. he then unleashes a hard-hitting set of near-instantaneous triple kicks called the three-point decoupage or uh, santen decoupage. The decoupage is a French cooking verb which means to cut up, so kind of makes sense. And I have to hand it to Sanji because this move looks like it hits super hard as it's both depicted in the anime and the manga. This kick is probably one of the hardest looking kicks I've ever seen Sanji unleash thus far, sending Wanze up two cars all the way up to the second car where the CP9 are waiting. And yeah, I just love how this kick is depicted. Like, because he's just kicking three times so quickly. It just happens to like just knock the shit out of Wanze. And yeah, with that, I mean, like, oh shit, like, Sanji has finally reached the CP9, but I have no idea how he's going to take on all four of them at the same time. Before that, back with Frankie and Nero, Frankie's getting owned by Nero, and I kind of agree with Nero about what did the four legs accomplish? (laughs) However, this eventually does catch Nero off guard, and Frankie reverses it by wrapping all four legs around Nero and pinning him to the roof then proceeding to cave in his face with the ultimate hammer punch with his metallic fist right through the train car ceiling, landing them both in the second car as well now. And what I'm surprised about this is the fact that Nero is still conscious after taking a hit like this directly to the face and then being sent through the train. I mean, he's tough, I'll give him that, but Lucci makes quick work of him when he realizes that he's not worthy of being a CP9. So it's at least now a two-on-four fight. Maybe if Robin rejoins them, it'll be a four-on-four with Soga King. But will it go that smoothly? I don't think so. Luchi does a bit of monologuing, and what he says is more or less everything we've already heard. But it's pretty much just reinforcing in our minds one of the major themes of this arc of should people be judged on their potential for evil or wrongdoing? And is merely existing a crime? Which we all know the answers to these questions are no. However, they're interrupted by Robin's sudden appearance in the second car as she makes it clear she doesn't want to return with the Straw Hats, tossing Sogeking aside. 
Soge King then immediately enacts a plan to everyone's surprise by instructing Frankie to detach the third car. Then he uses a smoke star to cover themselves and in the confusion grabs Robin and heads to jump off the train. And somehow it managed to sort of work, but of course the CP9 aren't so easily outsmarted by them as Khalifa uses her barbed whip to pull the cars back while Bluno holds them in place. Things really are starting to look bad. With no choice, Sanji rushes in to try and remove Bluno so that he releases the train cars and does a grounded concasse, which is cool because I didn't think this move could be performed unless it was in midair since it requires him to flip over and spin in the air. But he can actually perform a horizontal one by spinning on his arm and the concasse is strong as well. Frankie was somewhat able to affect Bluno's tech guy. Sanji actually nearly breaks through it, as we can see Bluno almost losing consciousness after taking that hit to the gut. And seeing this really starts to open your eyes that the CP9 aren't as invincible as they seem. If Sanji can almost break it, then it's only a matter of time before Luffy actually beats it. And I love how Oda constantly uses Bluno as sort of the measuring stick for the CP9's strength and durability compared to our heroes. Robin then performs the crutch on Soge King, not wanting to go with them because she believes that they're all doomed if she goes back on her deal with the CP9 to go with them quietly. Kaku then immediately blasts Sanji back to the back of the train. Frankie seeing this chance, he chooses to sacrifice himself, interestingly, for them so that they can get away with, which is something I had not expected at all, but Frankie has really taking a liking to the Straw Hats, and I'm pretty much, yeah, I, I really love Frankie at this point, because he's really showing that he fits in really well, and actually really likes being near the Straw Hats. So yeah, like I said, I'm fully on the Frankie train, and pun intended. Luchi then even asks Frankie why he'd go so far to protect them, and he responds by saying he can't help it when seeing a team trying so hard that has very little hope of becoming whole again. And Luchi picks up on this, as well as we, the audience, but obviously he's also referring to himself and Iceberg and their sort of fractured relationship and team. Even though they get away, the CP9 have one more trick up their sleeve as we see a door materialize out of thin air and out pops Bluno behind them and we get to see another power of the door door fruit as it was previously believed he can only turn already established surfaces into doors, but here... We see that he can create doors anywhere, it seems like. Not only that, but if you look behind him, it's not the direct door to the other train. Like you can see the portals, like in Portal, like the video game Portal. It looks like he's in some sort of pocket reality where he can step in and out of, which is pretty crazy when you think about it. It'll be interesting to see what Oda does with this fruit, as it seems pretty powerful being able to hide in and in and out of combat and sneak up on opponents seemingly randomly. However... With that cliffhanger of Bluno reappearing behind them, it seems like no matter what they do, they can't get away from the grasp of the CP9, especially with Robin so adamant on not leaving. The threat of the Buster Call has such a grip on her, it it'll continuously spurn any attempt at a rescue. And even though they get so close each time, it just slips right through their fingers. Although you could argue she has a point. I mean, they're having this much trouble dealing with the CP9, it stands to reason from Robin's point of view that they don't stand a chance against the Buster Call and the full might of the world government's forces. But yeah, things have taken a turn for the worst 
as just when we think they've managed to escape the relentless nature of the CP9, they might prove to be just too much, and unfortunately, we will have to wait till next time to see the outcome. But yeah, that'll bring this one to a close. If you did enjoy this, send me a like or comment, and if you want to join me on this journey of rewatching One Piece, please consider subscribing. Uh, check out my Instagram and Twitter account at Podcast if you want updates of when I post new episodes or see some pictures on my manga collection. Please check those out. Also, I kind of started streaming on Twitch uh, recently. And so, yeah, if you want to check out me watching or check out me playing video games, um, you can find me on Twitch at sunny double underscore go. And uh, yeah, hope to see you there as well if you're interested. As always, I want to take the time to thank you for taking the time to listen to my podcast. And no real spoiler section this time. So, yeah, stay safe out there, and I hope to see you on the next episode. Bye.